if you are contemplating what you might get me for Christmas, I would like that kid's haircut. That's, that's what I want. I love his haircut. I've read the Christmas story a thousand times, probably more than that. Many of you have as well. And over time, you know, it begins to be a little bit of a cartoon, doesn't it? Like, we have these, like, nativity sets, and we've got coloring books, and even I was reading to Kaya last night before bed. I, for those of you who don't know, I've got a little girl a little over two years old, and we're reading the Christmas story in one of her books, and it becomes a little bit sanitized. It becomes a little bit far away from us. Pastor? 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 Give me my Bible. It's not my Bible. It's God's Bible, but you understand what I'm saying. Um, and as I read it again this week and began to, began to study the text once again in Luke chapter 2, the birth account of Luke chapter 2, I was reminded that our perception of the Christmas story is not always or even very rarely, I would you know, go so far as to say very rarely, does it match up with what Luke, uh, who interviewed eyewitnesses of this account of what happened when Jesus was born, it doesn't always match up with what Luke is trying to communicate in the birth of Jesus. And so if you've got your Bibles, I would love for you to open them up to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, use an iPhone or an iPad. Scoot down the aisle and look on with someone who's got a Bible. There's a Bible in the seat back in front of you. If you don't have the text in front of you, that's okay. The scripture, as always, is up here on the screen. And we're going to read about the birth of Jesus from Luke chapter 2. For those of you who have been with us the last couple of weeks, we've talked about the world waiting on Jesus and this sense of anticipation and expectation that was building in the nation of Israel and even in creation itself. And then we talked about Mary kind of as a magnifying glass or a set of binoculars for Jesus and helping us to see him with greater clarity. So finally, it comes time for Jesus to be born 2,000 years ago in a humble stable in Bethlehem. And here's what Luke tells us in Luke chapter 2. We're starting in verse 1. He says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Crinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his home town. You see, for us to understand what Luke is communicating when he tells the story of Jesus, it is absolutely critical that we understand one word in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and it's not the shepherds, and it's not the manger, and it's not the nativity, and it's not the wise men. There is one word that it's critical for us to understand, and we have to bridge a historical gap. We've got to bridge a, a cultural gap. We've got to bridge a geographical gap, and the one word is this, Caesar Augustus. See, Jesus was born under the reign of Caesar Augustus. If you don't know anything about Caesar Augustus, he was born in the 60s B.C. He came to power in the 30s B.C. He was the grandnephew of Julius Caesar. You've heard of Julius Caesar from your Western Civ books in university and in high school. And once Julius Caesar died, the Roman Empire was kind of split among a number of people, and Caesar Augustus was one of them. And after some military exploits and some manipulation and some wiggling around, Caesar Augustus became the first kind of overarching Roman Empire of a united Roman Empire. Not split between multiples. Caesar Augustus was the single ruler. 
And over time, what happened is that the people in the Roman Empire and the subjects of the Roman Empire, and then Caesar Augustus even himself, began to believe that he was God incarnate. He wasn't just a man or a ruler. He wasn't just a general or a military guy, but that he was God take on flesh. In fact, Caesar Augustus' name wasn't really Caesar Augustus. It was Octavian. It was Octavian. He changed his name to Augustus, and the word Augustus means worthy of worship or to be revered or someone that we ought to bow before or great and exalted, worthy of worship. And that word Caesar really just means king. So Octavian, during his reign as the ruler of the Roman Empire, changed his name quite literally to king worthy of worship. I want some of you to give that a shot at Christmas dinner. Like when you walk in, it's like, hi, Todd, Merry Christmas. Actually, I'm, I'm no longer Todd. I have changed my name to King Worthy of Worship. K-Wow, if you prefer. It's King Worthy of Worship, K-Wow. You see what I'm saying? So don't call me Todd anymore. Everybody's going to be like, dude, you're Todd, okay? You, we're not calling you King Worthy of Worship. This is what Octavian did. In fact, listen to what was written about Jesus during the rule of Caesar Augustus. The most divine Jesus we, could, we could, should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending towards disillusion, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aura. Jesus, the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality. All cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Jesus as the beginning of the new year, whereas providence, which has regulated our whole existence, has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving to us King Jesus, whom it filled with strength for the welfare of men, and who being sent to us and our descendants as Savior has put an end to war and has set all things in order, and having become God manifest, Jesus has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times in surpassing all the benefactors who preceded him. And whereas, finally, the birthday of the God Jesus has been for the whole world, the beginning of the good news in the Greek, that's where we get our word evangelism, evangelion, good news, concerning him, therefore, let a new era begin from his birth. Go back to the beginning of that slide, if you would. Go back to the very beginning. Thank you. Every time I said the word Jesus, the word Jesus is not there. That was not written about Jesus. That was written about Caesar Augustus. In 8 BC, the most divine Caesar, we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending towards disillusion, he restored it once more and gave to the whole world a new aura. Next slide. Caesar, the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality, all the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the beginning of the year. Whereas providence, which has regulated our whole existence, has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving to us Augustus, whom it filled with strength for the welfare of men, and who, being sent to us and our descendants as Savior, this Greek word is soter here, be, be conscious of that, make note of that mentally because we'll come back, has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times and surpassing all the benefactors who preceded him. 
And whereas finally the birthday of the God Augustus has been for the whole world, the beginning of the good news, Evangelion, concerning him, therefore, let a new era begin from his birth. Understand that what Luke wants us to know is that Jesus was born in a specific time and place, a specific moment in human history when the greatest empire the world has ever known was at its height and a man who thought he was God incarnate ruled over that empire, God sent a new king into the world. The birth of Jesus is not about shepherds and mangers and wise men. The birth of Jesus is about a clash of kingdoms. There was a kingdom in place, and God was inaugurating a new king and a new kingdom. A new king that came to instill a new set of values. A new king who came to subvert the existing kingdom and establish his own. Luke wants his readers to know that a new king is here, and with him comes a new kingdom that, that topples the current king and inaugurates or introduces a new way of life for kingdom subjects. Understand that Luke's conversation and his account of the birth of Christ is all about a new heavenly kingdom, the kingdom of God. So Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, which is what we're going to take a look at today, helps us to understand the contrast between the kingdom of Caesar and subsequently the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. It helps us to understand that this is how it's worked up to this point. This is what the world looks like. This is how humans do things. But that's not how I do things, God says. I do things this way. And from the outset, from the advent, from the beginning of my kingdom inauguration, I want you to know that I do things differently. Now watch this. Watch this. Because this is brilliant. This is brilliant what Luke does. I love Luke, not just because his name is mine, but because he's brilliant. Okay, so watch this. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, this is funny, because here's the thing. Joseph and Mary, Mary pregnant with Jesus, did not live in Bethlehem. They lived in Nazareth, and they had to pack their stuff up and go to Bethlehem in order to register for this census that Caesar was conducting. And the reason that he was conducting a census was not because he wanted to make sure I, I count all the people and I know all their names so I can love them well. That's not why Caesar wanted to count them. He wanted to count them so he could tax them more accurately so that he could build his power, his army, and his authority. But unknowingly... Caesar fulfilled the plan of God. This makes me laugh. He thought very, very highly of himself, and his decree actually moved the plan of God forward and fulfilled a 750-year-old prophecy. Watch this. Micah 5, verse 2 says this. But you, O Bethlehem of Hathra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you shall from, for, from you shall come forth for me... One who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. 
Now watch this. We would not have got a ruler born in Bethlehem if Caesar would not have issued a decree. We would have got a ruler born in Nazareth. But Caesar, because he falls under the sovereignty of God, issued a decree and unknowingly fulfilled a 750-year-old prophecy. Now that's funny. Here's what God wants us to know. This is the first thing he wants us to know about his kingdom is that I rule over all kings and all kingdoms. God is sovereign. He is in control of all kings and all kingdoms. Nothing slips through his providential fingers. God never says, whoops. He never turns around and goes, oh my gosh, I didn't see that coming. He didn't 2,000 years ago and he doesn't now. He doesn't now in Aleppo, Syria. He does not now with the kingdom of ISIS. He does not now with the kingdom of Trump. I don't, listen, listen, here's the thing. I don't care if you like him or not. I don't care if you voted for him or not. You don't get to vote anyway. I do. Some of you might. I got to. <laughs> this is why Paul tells us in Philippians 4, for our citizenship is in where? Heaven. And we eagerly await, what, a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. God controls all kings and all kingdoms. There is no earthly governor that can do anything to you that falls outside of the sovereign plan of almighty God. Is that not good news? Yes. Not now and not 2,000 years ago. He still controls all kings and all kingdoms. Let's keep reading. Watch Luke contrast these two kingdoms. I think this is funny. Verse 4, Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. I know I read that fast, but this is funny because Luke starts to get passive aggressive. <laughs> this is amazing. He tells us twice, you're going to the city of David and you are from the house and lineage of David, that Joseph, Jesus' legal father, adoptive father, his father, father was heavenly father, Mary born, uh, Jesus born of a virgin, Mary, okay, Holy Spirit came upon her, she was pregnant, had Jesus, but Joseph is his legal father, so he wants us to know that Jesus comes from the city of David, born in the city of David, from the house and lineage of David, not just lineage of David, not just house of David, but house and lineage of David, this is where Jesus comes from. Why? Because this is another thousand-year-old prophecy fulfilled in Jesus. Because in 2 Samuel, God made a promise to David. Listen to his promise to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring, someone who comes from your house and lineage, after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his, say this word with me, it's all about kings and kingdoms, right? He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Anytime that the Bible repeats words a bunch of times, we should pay attention to them. And I know we talk about kings and kingdoms and the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Jesus a lot in here, but you know why we do? Because that's what the Bible's about. So a thousand years before Jesus came around, God makes a promise to David, and he says, from your lineage, go back one slide, from your, go back one slide, from your lineage, I will raise up offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom and his throne, his kingdom forever, his kingdom and his throne, his kingdom, and how many times does it say this word forever? One, two, three, right? God wants us to know that his kingdom, fulfilled in Jesus, when he sends his son Jesus through the house and lineage of David, that his kingdom is forever. 
The kingdom of Caesar is for now. God's kingdom is eternal. The kingdom of Caesar is temporal. It will pass away. In fact, it did pass away. Rome is one of my favorite cities on the planet. I love Rome. Um, One of the interesting things about Rome is when kind of in modernity when people came in and they started to set up museums and, you know, you could pay your quarter and you go in and you get to see like a tower or, you know, the Colosseum or whatever. They actually ran out of like fun stuff to turn into museums. Not ran out, but they had too much is what happened. So what, it, what happened, instead of destroying all this old stuff that was from the early Roman Empire, this stuff that's like boring to see and doesn't have anything to do with the Colosseum or the you know, Pantheon and what, whatever else is there, I don't even know whatever else is there. They, they, they actually just built on top of it and built around it. And they have a word for it, it's called spolia. And basically what it means is stuff from the Roman Empire that's really boring that we just didn't find it in our heart to tear it down and it's not really interesting so we didn't build a museum around it. That's the loose translation of spolia. So a couple years ago, I'm in Rome and I'm in a coffee shop and it's like, it's equivalent to like a second cup. Why I'm in is like a second cup in Rome, I will never know, but that's beside the point. So I'm, I have my coffee in this coffee shop and I set it down on a counter and I ask our tour guide, hey, like this counter looks kind of old. Is this kind of, you know, how did they do this? Is this kind of a, is this paper mache? What is this, right? And he's going, no, that counter is 2,500 years old. They just didn't tear it down when they came in and set up museums in Rome. And I'm going, (laughs) he thought this was going to last forever, Caesar did, when they started building this empire. Now, I'm resting my $7 cappuccino on his little counter that he thought he was going to last forever. Now, people name their dogs Caesar and Nero. People name their kids Peter and John. Why? Because the kingdom of God is eternal. It's not temporal. From the house and lineage of David. Let's keep reading. It says, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. This is Jesus. Wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger, likely a food trough for uh, livestock, because there was no place for them in the inn This would have been very, very odd in first century uh, Jewish culture for Joseph and Mary to be likely traveling with a caravan of people to Bethlehem and have no place to stay. When they say inn, that is not holiday inn. That is the caravan of people that they're traveling with. And so the fact that they had no place to go means they were ostracized, forgotten about, on the outside. This whole thing, you know, there's an innkeeper and they go to the innkeeper and they say, there's no room for me at the end, no room for you at the end. That's, that's a myth that doesn't show up in scripture. But Joseph and Mary end up in a manger, in a, in a stall, in a barn. And if you've ever been in a barn, it's not the kind of place that you go, you know what I'd really love to do is take a quick nap, just lay down here on the floor. But that's where Mary has her child and she wraps him in swaddling cloths and lays him in a food trough. This is the new king come to subvert and replace the existing king, the forever king, the eternal king, not born in a palace, but born in a humble stable into poverty. Why? Because we have an empathetic king 
as the chap, fourth chapter of Hebrews would say, a king who is able to sympathize with all of our weaknesses, be they poverty, loneliness, ostracism, being on the outside, being forgotten about. He knows every little bit, not just because he's God, but because he lived it. Loss, brokenness, a man acquainted with grief and familiar with suffering, even from day one. See, the kingdom of Caesar was an apathetic kingdom. He was removed from his people. He considered them commodities, slaves. He would throw them to the lions just for kicks and giggles. Completely apathetic. But when God's new king shows up on the scene, it's an empathetic kingdom, a kingdom that understands. Let's keep reading because I think this is really funny. (laughs) I think, like... I I really think Luke chapter two is a very, very funny passage. Here's why, look, look at verse eight, look at verse eight. So Jesus is born and verse eight says, in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. I want everybody to close your eyes right now and picture a shepherd in your head. Close your eyes, seriously, close your eyes. Got it? Picture of a shepherd. Got it? Okay, open your eyes. Listen, what... Bible scholars tell us and what historians tell us is that shepherds were kind of a ragtag group of society. These were not the good shepherds like Jesus talked about. These were hired hands that that were hired to care for flocks and to tend flocks. But they were kind of well known as thieves. They were well known as the, you know, kind of on the outskirts of society. They were considered even ceremonially unclean. They were unable to go into the temple and you know, do kind of normal religious stuff. And so what you probably pictured in your head when you thought of a shepherd was somebody with a staff, right? And a thing on their head and a robe. Got it? Let me show you what a shepherd would look like in modern times based on what we know historically about who shepherds were and what they did. They're up here on the screen. Those are shepherds. That's the, best, that's the best picture we've got in modern times. You know that a, a U.S. politician one, once made a comment that 99% of motorcyclists are law-abiding citizens. So the Hells Angels wear a patch on their leather jackets that say 1%. We're the 1% of not law-abiding citizens. You know, don't picture shepherds as like, you know, wrapped around their head and they're they're looking at each other going, what, what sayest thou, you know, <laughs> Ezekiel or whatever their names were. I don't know. Like, oh, fantastic, angels in the sky. That makes sense since I was just doing my morning devotional. You know what I mean? Like, this is not shepherds. These are thieves. They're, they're robbers. They're, 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 they're the outcasts of society. They're forgotten about. And so when God sends his son into the world and sends his angels to announce the good news that a new king is born... He comes to those guys, shepherds. See, the kingdom of God is inclusive. The kingdom of God has arms spread wide. He didn't come to priests. He didn't come to kings. He didn't show up to the religious leaders. He showed up to a bunch of ragtag biker dudes in the middle of a field outside of Bethlehem. See, the kingdom of Caesar is exclusive unless you're smart, Unless you're powerful, unless you're rich, 
you don't have any authority in this kingdom. You don't have any say in this kingdom. You, have, you, don't have any, you don't have any sway in this kingdom. Is that not what our world looks like now? The kingdom of the world? Unless you have money, unless you have power, unless you have smarts, unless you're good looking and you got calf implants, you know, you don't have any say in this world. But Jesus shows up on the scene and he goes, y'all come. Everybody. Even the sinner, thief, biker dude. In fact, in fact, I'm gonna choose them to announce the birth of my kid. I hope you find this as funny as I do. I think God is so funny. Look at verse nine. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them. That word glory is doxa. It's the same word in the Old Testament, if you know it, for Shekinah, glory of God. They were filled with great fear. Of course they were. They're thieves and God shows up. Like, if you're a bad person and God shows up, how do you feel immediately? Well, I'm terrified, okay? And the angel said to them, fear not, oh, thank you, for behold, I bring you good news. This is funny, because Luke uses the very same word from that 8th century inscription about Caesar Augustus, Evangelion, you remember it? Fear not. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. You see, Caesar Augustus kept peace in Rome by way of intimidation and fear. He would march his armies around cities, and they wouldn't necessarily do anything or burn anybody down, but he would, he would show his power and show his authority and show his control by marching his army around a city and intimidating people. But see, when God since his angel armies, and the next verse says these are a multitude of heavenly hosts, he sends his army of angels. They, they do not announce fear and intimidation. They don't announce war. They announce peace. They announce joy. See, the kingdom of the world is a kingdom of fear. Afraid I might, live, might not live up to standards. Afraid people might find out what I'm really like. Afraid that I'm going to get abandoned. Afraid that I'm never going to get that job that I really want. Afraid that I'm not going to be able to pay my bills this month. But when God sends his son into the world from day one, before the cord is even cut, he wants us to know that in my kingdom, there's joy. The absence of fear. Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. Bible scholars uh, make note here. Go back one, please. Go back. There you go. Go back. Sorry. You leave it here. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. These three words, Savior, Christ, and Lord, only appear together one time in all of Scripture, and it's right here in Luke chapter, nine, or chapter 2, verse 9. Savior is the same word that was used of Caesar in that 8th century B.C. inscription. This is Christos and this is Kyrios. This is Jesus came to save. Jesus is the anointed one and Jesus is the new king, the new sovereign. Keep going, verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly with the angel, there was a multitude or an army of the heavenly hosts, angels, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, from day one, Jesus enters a specific time and place 
a specific moment in the history of humanity with a specific ruler in place and a specific culture in place in order to demonstrate that his kingdom is different. His rule is different. His authority is different. The way he governs his people is different than the way Caesar did it and the way that the kingdom of our world works now. So we just tracked through verses 1 through 14. So I just wanted to remind you with one slide, this is what the kingdom of Jesus looks like. It's a kingdom of generosity and giving. Where Caesar took, God gave. It's a kingdom of peace where Caesar waged war and sent his armies to declare war. God sent armies of angels to declare peace. The kingdom of Jesus is a kingdom of invitation. It's not a kingdom of intimidation. Come and see. We're not forcing you to do anything. Just come and see. It's a kingdom of inclusion. We see that in the shepherds. The kingdom of Jesus is for all people. It's a kingdom of freedom from oppression and freedom from the chains that bind us. It's a, free, it's a kingdom of justice. It's a kingdom of empathy, not apathy. It's a kingdom of joy, not fear. And it's an eternal kingdom, not a temporary one. The kingdom of Jesus will last forever. Now, let's talk about what that means here and now. Look up here on the screen. Is there, go back one, thanks, go back one, thanks, go back one, love you. Um, look up here and tell me if there are any one or two or three of these words that might be really helpful in Aleppo, Syria right now. Tell me if there's one or two or three of these words that might be helpful for the refugees in the Mediterranean right now. Tell me if there's one, two, three, four of them that might be helpful for the AIDS epidemic in Africa or hunger that's going on across the world. Tell me, tell me if there's one, two, three, four, five, maybe nine of these words that might be helpful in your marriage right now or in your finances or in the ways that you interact with friends and family. Tell me if, uh, tell me if you know, those awkward Christmas dinners that you're about to have next week, tell me if you'd rather have these words governing conversations and not the opposite. You see, when God promises David that the kingdom of Jesus would be eternal, he's not just talking about time. He's talking about scope of influence. So it's not just a global kingdom or a political kingdom. It's a personal kingdom. It's a relational kingdom. It's a kingdom that's applicable to any and every aspect of our lives. And from day one in Luke chapter two, Luke wants us to know that the kingdom of Jesus is different than the kingdom of the world. And he, on behalf of God, invites us to participate in that kingdom to learn from the new king and live out kingdom values anywhere and everywhere we go. We're going to conclude with this. And so the question is, now that we know the kingdom, the type of kingdom that God was setting up through his son, Jesus, what's our response? And our response is to act. It's up here on the screen. Now, 
For those of you who know me and have been around Bayview Glen for a while, you know that I don't ever use stupid acrostics like this and stupid acronyms, and I think this is stupid. But I do think it's memorable, and I do think it reflects what we see in terms of the shepherds and Mary in their response to this new kingdom. So if you think this is stupid and really oversimplified, that's fine. You're smarter than me. That's awesome, okay? But this is something to help us remember what is the appropriate response to the advent of the new king. The first, uh, the first action here shows up in Luke chapter 2, verse 15, in the angel's action. Look at verse 15. It says, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. So the first, the A in Acts stands for accept. Accept. Remember that Caesar's kingdom was a kingdom of intimidation. Caesar's kingdom was a kingdom of fear. But the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus, is a kingdom of invitation. The angels say, come and see. Just come see this thing. And for many of you in this place, this is your first step towards learning who Jesus is and what he's about and what his kingdom really looks like. It's simply to accept the invitation to come and see. Not just at Christmas time, but every day and every moment to simply accept the invitation. Nobody's asking you to like, go be a missionary in Africa. Nobody's asking you to you know, be a crazy Christian person with 19 bumper stickers on your car. Nobody's asking you to do any of that. What the angels ask the shepherds, God is still extending that same invitation to you today. And he's asking you to accept the invitation. Just come and see. And for those of us who accepted the invitation, our next step is to respond like Mary did. Verse 19 says, Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. Treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Bible scholars point out it's very interesting that Mary ponders these things in her heart. She doesn't ponder them in her mind or in her head. Most of us think when we ponder, we're using our brain. But Mary's pondering in her heart. She's treasuring these things. She's meditating on these things. What she has seen and heard from the angels, what she has seen and heard from the shepherds, what she has seen and heard in having a baby as a virgin, she begins to consider all that God has done. She begins to consider all that God has done. And that's the same invitation for you and I today. Once we have accepted that invitation to come and see, we begin to consider, we begin to ponder, we begin to meditate, we begin to treasure up all these things in our heart, to tuck them away in our brain and with our emotions and with our spirits, engage with who God is and what he's done and allow them to saturate our souls and change us. And finally, and this is my favorite response of the shepherds, verse 17, and when they saw it, they made known the saying that had, that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. So once we accept and consider, we begin to tell. 
begin to tell. Bible scholars point out that the shepherds are the very first evangelist. These ragtag, leather-wearing, biker-looking dudes. The very first evangelist. And they begin to just tell everyone and anyone that will listen about this thing that they had seen. Do you think that they knew all the answers? No. Do you think when they were asked a question about creation versus evolution and the role of science and faith, that they were able to answer that question? No. Do you think that when they were asked a question, well, how was the Bible formed and how can it be trusted? Do you think they were able to answer that question? No. They simply began to tell anyone and everyone who would listen about their experience with a new king and a new kingdom. Something different is here. Something true is here. Something real is here. Something where the poor become rich, where the last become first, where the humble get exalted, and you just need to come and see. For many of us this Christmas season, we have an opportunity to do just what the shepherds did and begin to tell others about a new king and a new kingdom. And I think we get afraid sometimes about sharing our faith in Christ and about talking to other people. So I want to give you just a couple of quick tools, really easy ways that you can share about who God is and this thing that you've experienced and this new king and this new kingdom that you've experienced. One of them is by simply asking friends and family this Christmas season, how can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? Like, you don't need to pull out the four spiritual laws and, you know, you don't need to do any of that stuff. Just how can I pray for you? My friends that don't know Jesus, that have not experienced this new king and his kingdom, none of them have ever denied me the opportunity to pray for them. When I ask, how can I pray for you, I've never gotten anybody say, you know what, I'd rather you didn't. Especially in moments of crisis. It's one way that you can tell about who Jesus is and what he's done. Another way is just to invite people over to your home. You know, we've provided a couple of tools. One of them is for Christmas Day. It's a little bit more of a family devotional time, but our New Year's Day activity and, and, and our New Year's Day devotional thing is a little less of a family devotional, and it's a little more of an outreach to the community activity. It's posted online, bayviewglenn.org slash Christmas dash at dash home. You saw that on the screen a little while ago. But my invitation to you would be to download that and help, uh, that can help walk you through inviting people in your neighborhood over to your home, serving them a meal, being hospitable, being a person who is giving and generous, just like Jesus was giving and generous, and asking spiritual questions. And none of them are weird spiritual questions. It's not like, hey, just before we get dessert here, can everybody share the worst thing that they've ever done? You know, it's none of that stuff. Like, it's just, hey, how has God blessed you this year? And what are the good things that have happened this year? I mean, it's just really easy stuff. And it's a way that you can tell, that you can follow the example of the shepherds and tell other people about the kingdom of God. My invitation to you this morning is simply this, is to recognize that God's entrance into the history of humanity, God's entrance into the world was the inauguration of a new kingdom, the installation of a new king, a new kingdom with different values that turned the old kingdom upside down. And our 
invitation and even our responsibility as followers of Christ is to accept the invitation that God extends through his angels to come and see this thing. To contemplate, to consider, to meditate on, to treasure up these things in our hearts and then to tell others about them. As we close together this morning, we're going to prepare our hearts to receive communion. And as we do that, I want to invite you to pray with me as the ushers make their way back to serve us. God, you're good today, and you are in control. You control kings and kingdoms, no matter if they're a kingdom that's been gone for 1,700 years or a kingdom that will be gone 1,700 years from now. You control all things, and you're sovereign. And we are grateful that as subjects of your kingdom, we live under a new set of values a humble king, an empathetic king, a generous king, a good king, an eternal king that cares for and shepherds his people well. God, may we be a people this Christmas season that accepts that invitation, that treasures these things up in our heart, and that tells other people about the true king. God, as we prepare our hearts now to receive uh, these communion elements, would you remind us that Jesus didn't just come to live, but he came to die. To live a perfect life and then to die in our place, to go to the cross and pay the debt that we owed. Remind us, oh God, of your goodness to us as we hold these elements, as we remember the body that was given for us and the blood that was shed for us. As we sing for joy for all you are and all you've done.